Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast is sponsored by Janus Henderson Investors. As such, the sponsor can make suggestions for topics, but the final control of the content remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with David Elms, who is the head of Diversified Alternatives and Portfolio Manager with Janus Henderson Investors. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Walter. Thanks very much for having me on. It's It's good to be here. So we might start with your background and and how you got into investing. But um, I I believe you're based in London, but are actually from Melbourne. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I've been in London for about about 20 years, but I certainly uh, fail John Major's cricket test, which is that you're English if you support the English cricket team. I'm I'm definitely (laughs) definitely still Australian. Excellent. So how did you get into investing? I, I got into investing... By, by chance, I guess. I don't know what I would have done if the chance hadn't happened that way. So I left school in Melbourne in the in the mid-80s, and uh, I, I'd always been good at maths, and I liked maths, and I was going to go to university and do pure maths, and I, I, I sort of lasted until Easter in my first year and realised that uh, if I continued the way I was going, I was not going to make it through the, the degree. So I, I took some time out. I deferred a year and just, just fell randomly into a role at uh, BHP in Melbourne, and the the role was supporting the team that was trying to fend off Robert Holmes Accord, who was trying to take over BHP in the in the in the mid eighties. Uh, and the the job I got as somebody slightly math literate was to track Robert Holmes Accord's trading in BHP options, and that got me interested in options and in finance, and gave me a direction. And I went back to university to study commerce uh, and, and uh, sort of followed an actuarial path. But really, from that point on, uh, I wanted to be an investor. Uh, and, but I, as I said, I don't know would have ha- what would have happened if I hadn't uh, got that role. If I'd ended up doing something else, the path could have been completely different. So definitely a bit of a sliding doors moment back there, but very happy with where it's got me. Yeah, so that must be one of the most exciting ways to get into investing, doing detective work in, in options and trying to prevent the takeover. Well, it's exciting to me. I'm glad it's exciting to you as well. <laughs> um, so you're now uh, um, head of diversified alternatives, factor strategies, I think what most people think of. How did you get involved into that? Is that, again, your mathematical background or, or did you get it there in another way? For somebody in, interested in, invest, in investing and with a quantitative background, uh, I think hedge funds allows you to express different forms of investing with fewer constraints than you see in traditional long-only uh, investment. 
So I, I guess the first hedge fund uh, I was in, involved in uh, and helped launch was at Portfolio Partners in Melbourne in the late 1990s. And uh, that, that was a good experience. And when I moved uh, to London shortly after Portfolio Partners was acquired by, um, by what is now Aviva, uh, there was an opportunity to, to do that at, uh, at Henderson in London uh, and uh, started running money there uh, and uh, basically took what was more of a long short equity process and diversified it out to multi-strategy to global built out the team and uh, showing a, a lack of imagination in my career I've, I've been there ever since but it's it, the business is very different from from where it was uh, in the early 2000s yeah you mentioned the portfolio partners so that was a firm that you i think co-founded can you tell me a little bit about um, what it was like to run your own firm and do you have any sort of tips for people that are thinking about it? If you're thinking about it, do it is my tip. Uh, it's it's an incredibly rewarding experience. It's rewarding if it succeeds, obviously rewarding financially and career-wise if it succeeds. But I think at some point in your career, being part of a startup and having that energy that common purpose. It's an irreplaceable experience. Uh, and it's certainly something that if you can inject a little bit of that into the, the teams that you that you run as your career progresses, that's very good. But but I think you're being very generous saying um, I was a, a founder of portfolio partners. I, I was um, sort of late 20s and the most junior of the eight founding partners. It, it sure as hell uh, would have still happened if I hadn't been around, but it was it was was great to be there, and I, and I learned an awful lot. I think the, the people responsible for that were David Slack and and Keith Ince, who are, are both you know, well well regarded figures of the Australian fund management industry, and and they were were both uh, instrumental in a formative phase of my career. Yeah, let's delve a little bit into the diversified alternatives. We're sort of in an unusual. Uh, market environment, although I think I've been saying that for the last 12 years now. But we basically come out of a period where there was very lenient monetary policy. And there was a bit of a, a feeling that central banks have been behind the curve and are trying to catch up. So we see a ramp up in interest rates, we see inflation going up pretty quickly. How do you think about that? How does it influence sort of the strategies you look after? It's a huge change. So I guess you know, my, my career, as I, as I mentioned, goes back to the early 90s. And it goes back to uh, you know, one-year risk-free rates in Australia being, sorry, being high teens uh, and, and going in one direction from that point along with inflation. So for me, even with the experience that I've, I've had, I've not really seen a, a, an environment where inflation's gone up substantially where interest rates have gone up substantially. And I think that's generally true of, of the industry. So we are in uncharted waters. We don't know what happens uh, with modern market structure uh, and modern investment techniques in an environment where pricing of risk is changing from the risk-free asset outwards. So I think you need to be very careful with, uh, with, with taking what's happened historically, particularly in a backtesting environment and for quantitative strategies, backtesting is very important and extrapolating it because the world is is different. People say it's, it's never different this time and, and you've got to you've got to be careful about assuming too much. But I, I think that, that here, here you have to reset a lot of the assumptions. So, so a good example for, uh, is the, the role of bonds in a portfolio. So 
pretty much uh, this century. I always date it back to 1998 when LTCM collapsed. The correlation between bonds and equities has been negative. So a bond equity portfolio, a 60-40 portfolio, for example, has been self-stabilizing because of that negative correlation. You've also had, and it's starting to appear again, but you've also had bond yields high enough that there was the potential that um, yields could go down uh, if um, if there was a crisis and that would create capital gains that would stabilize the portfolio. But you go back to a low yield environment and the tendency in inflationary times for the correlation to be positive between bond prices and equity prices and, and your balanced portfolio is not gonna look the same as, a, as it was before. So how do you stabilize that balanced portfolio? You probably need to inject other assets and the other assets is where alternatives comes into the picture. I, I might just pick up on what you said about those backtests. So if, if you have sort of this environment where you, you can't really rely on the recent future, do you sort of look back at periods in history that you think might be similar to where we're going towards? Yeah, I, I, I think you can, but but you need to be careful because the if, if we go back to, say, the 70s, which is a great uh, time to, to look at inflation and the most recent time that we really had substantial increases in inflation, the, the market was a different place. Uh, so the market participants were different. The role of retail was di- different. The scale of hedge funds was uh, very, very much smaller. And, and so the behavioral assumptions that, that, that you're driving based on the participants in the market today and not necessarily the same as what, what they were back in the 70s. So I, I don't think you can necessarily you know, take some sort of pattern recognition strategy that that um, uh, that would have worked back then and apply it now because the, the, everything is different. But but that said, it's a, it's a, a useful guide. So I would say that you know, for example, in, in inflationary times, let's say inflation is very simply prices moving in one direction. It's autocorrelation in prices. And if you take a strategy like trend following, trend following by definition exploits autocorrelation in prices. So I think we can say that a trend following strategy, we can have a reasonable prior that it will perform strongly in inflationary times. Uh, the same goes for some real asset strategies. So, so commodities, for example, are, um, are assets that can easily reprice in a way that financial assets cannot. So I think there's some broad principles that you can establish, but I wouldn't overtune a backtest to periods in history that are remote in terms of market structure and market participants. Yeah. So you talked about that breaking down of sort of the, the bond equity correlation. And I think investors started to think about that when the interest rates were getting really low, and you just mentioned trend following as well. We saw a couple of years ago a sort of this movement in, in the US, uh, which was mainly driven by an asset consultant at the time, I think, but it was picked up by a number of US pension funds, where they talked about this crisis risk offset ID. And, and basically, they were looking for strategies that would diversify from equity risk and, and, and not rely too much on bonds. And trend following was a big part of that. And, and I think Kelsters in the US is one that, that put a lot of trend following in the portfolio to sort of even out that balance. Now, that sort of after that had a bit of a mixed, I think, uh, result. Uh, it, it depended very much on how you implemented it. But it seems that at the start of this year, we, we see trend following coming quite 
uh, strongly back. And, and this idea seems to now actually pay off a little bit. Do you see this as sort of a, a, a confirmation that this was a good idea? Or how do you look at that uh, development? Yeah, I think trend following is a part of a crisis alpha program. And it's a scalable part of a, price, of a crisis alpha program. And it's something that can be built at a reasonable cost for fee-sensitive investors. Um, and, and the large-scale investors that you referred to are, are indeed, you know, need scale and, and, and need reasonable cost. But I, I don't think that there is a single silver bullet for, for crisis alpha. So I think that trend following is part of the solution. And market environments like this year's, where the market has basically, you know, what are we down, a little uh, of the order of 20% at, at, at the time of speaking in the US market, but with no one day uh, more than 4% down. So, so it's been a relatively orderly trend. And surprise, surprise, when there's a trend, trend following works. So, so in this sort of environment, it's, it, it performs well. And I think inflation, as we discussed earlier, is part of that picture, certainly in the commodity complex and the weak performance of uh, bonds given the steadily rising uh, interest rates. But it, as I said, it's not the only solution. So, so I think you go back to 2020, uh, 2020, the market did 20% in days, not, not, not over six months in days. And uh, it, it went from being benign and upwards when a trend program would be pointing long risk assets like equities, and it flipped quickly as the news of COVID appeared and gapped downwards. And, and in that environment, it's it's hard to, to make money for trend following. If you're using short horizon uh, trading, then it can get you out of trouble, but it's very hard to get a position short as asset prices move so fast. And, and you roll back in history, you say 9-11, that was literally risk out of a clear blue sky. Uh, there's no way that a trend program uh, can anticipate and, uh, and, uh, and deal with that. Uh, Fukushima, the, the tsunami uh, in Japan in 2011, the 87 crash. Th these are hard things for trend following to get in front of. And uh, we, the, the way we build a portfolio to be robust with these genuinely exogenous events is to have a degree of volatility in there. When I say volatility, I'm going back to my, my roots of options in, in the mid-80s. But really, the only thing that you can have that is guaranteed to protect uh, in the sense of not being signal-based and relying on some pattern to, to, to trade in front of is having options in your portfolio. So we think that's part of the solution as well. Uh, and we also think that a discretionary macro program is part of the solution. So crisis alpha for us, in the same way that we diversify risk-taking strategies, we diversify risk-mitigating strategies as well. And we hope to be able to cover a range of different environments. Yeah. Because we have seen quite a few different environments, and, and at the same time, we see now interest rates go up again. We, we were speaking to somebody a couple of weeks ago who said he was quite excited by the fact that, you know, in today's market, you can get a 10-year Australian government bond again with a, with a decent yield. So what does that mean sort of going forward? Do, we, do you think that that negative bond correlation will be... Uh, um, will return again? And how would you structure then the diversifying strategies uh, in that environment? Uh, forecasting is very difficult, particularly about the future. I think it's a great Yogi Berra quote, actually. Okay, yes. But um, 
if you're broadly to categorize regimes, then then 2% inflation seems to be about the point at which the, the correlation between bonds and equities flips from negative, i.e. diversifying, to positive, i.e. amplifying. Uh, and I, I think that's that's kind of the critical variable. So, so do we believe we're in a regime where 2% and above inflation is likely to be the, the norm in, in the economies that we care about. And, and I think balance of probabilities we are, and therefore balance of probabilities, the discount rate effect, which is uh, higher interest rates, obviously changing the present value of bonds, but also changing the present value of equities is likely to dominate. Uh, and that means, uh, means correlation, if not positive, then close to zero. Uh, and and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's shades of gray. You, if the correlation is high, then the assets amplify, and you you basically find that a uh, you don't diversify as much by putting equities and bonds together. So I, I think balance of probabilities were in a uh, a more correlated environment for financial assets, and that probably pushes the case for something else in the portfolio. There's something else in the portfolio is where alternatives come in, and I think what what sort of alternatives do you want in that scenario? There's there's no point having alternatives that are not really alternative that that are more equity or more more uh, bonds. Uh, it's very hard to run a, a perfect zero correlation with any portfolio, but but something that's heavy on equities or heavy on bonds is not really diversifying. And in, in a sense, you, I question how alternative is an alternative that that behaves that way. Yeah. Yeah. So when we look at sort of the, the, the pandemic period, you mentioned that uh, March period where there was a, a quick uh, downturn in markets where, you know, trend following doesn't really have enough time to adjust to that sort of reality. At the same time, it was, you know, volatile and, and uncertain, which is an environment that alternatives tend to do a little bit better. And then at the same time, we have this strange sort of continuation of growth, almost like the pandemic never never really happened in the equity markets are there any sort of takeaways that you take from this highly unusual environment at a philosophical level none of us none of us really wargamed covid seriously as a scenario before it actually happened so i I think you need to be humble and assumption free about the future as much as you can because there, there are always going to be uh, it's, it's a much used term, but but black swans or unknown unknowns, uh, and uh, you need to build a portfolio that's robust for that. And, and certainly, the the take on COVID, in a sense, was that if you closed your eyes and stuck your fingers in your ears and pretended it wasn't happening, uh, and got through March and and twenty uh, twenty, then everything was all right. Stocks roared off with the um, the stimulus. But that wasn't the only way things could have could have played, and it's a it's a, a credit to governments in most parts of the world that they were able to stabilise the economy. I think the the experience of two thousand and eight and the necessity for for large scale intervention probably helped that. But it it didn't have to go that way, and and the alternative scenarios of uh, what if the stimulus hadn't come? What if the variant? Yeah. You know, what what if the uh, if the Delta variant had been the first mutation of, of of COVID being far more infectious than the original Wuhan strain? All all of the, all of those those counterfactuals mean that the, the path that we that actually happened wasn't necessarily the only path that could have happened. So, 
I think I think that's uh, that's important, but it doesn't necessarily say that everything is going to be okay being in stocks forever. I think over the long run, sure, uh, but but the long run is decades, uh, and uh, it's not necessarily five years or ten years, and it's highly valuation dependent. If stocks are, are expensive, that uh, that makes uh, returns lower. If they're cheaper, the returns can potentially be be higher. And I think the the, the big thing that that COVID probably didn't do spare, spared the industry from was a, a reckoning on private valuations. So you you were pretty much able to close your eyes, stick your fingers in your ear if you were uh, running private assets. You didn't have to to mark them to market, and by the time you got around to it, things were on the improve, and you could justify much better assumptions than at the COVID bottom. And I think that's tougher. In 22, with with markets sustainably lower for long periods of time, and some of the more bubbly public market valuations are depressing. So I think it's harder to maintain the pricing on private assets, and I think that's something that the industry is dealing with now, and and could be dealing with for for quite some time uh, to come. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So if we take a look at some of the opportunities in, in the market today, I think you've made some comments around. Uh, seeing more interesting things on the more liquid end of the market. Can you explain that a little bit? The comments I just made about private assets, uh, I, I think you can paint uh, illiquidity as a feature, not a bug, but I'm not quite sure I believe in that. I, I think the the ability to turn an asset into cash is of value. There ought to be an illiquidity premium and and difficulties in valuation where the value of the asset is is uncertain because of the absence of a traded market is is a negative not a positive so i guess i don't really buy into the idea that you stabilize a portfolio's volatility by by not actively marking it to market now that doesn't mean that i i believe that all investors should be watching their screens ticking all day long i don't think that's the right approach either but I, I think that that you need to be careful with illiquid uh, assets. So, so where, where's the opportunity on the liquid side? I think it's it's to build with a range of different strategies, uncorrelated approaches. So I go back to my comments below that when a when earlier when, when a portfolio is lacking diversification because the correlation of some of the key elements of it is going up, then, then you want to find. Uh, strategies that that are undiversified, and and that's the sort of thing that we seek uh, in in our process. Sorry, I said undiversified. I meant, of course, diversified. That's what we seek in our process. Uh, uh, it's a challenge to build those things, but I think it's rewarding in terms of the outcome that it produces for investors. Yeah. Now we spoke a little bit about different ways of trying to solve sort of the the balance between the assets and uh, the uh, different correlations, but there's of course also sort of these moments in the markets, especially during crisis where, where it seems like all correlations just go to one. And um, I, I suppose a different way of saying it is how diversifying are all the alternatives? And I sort of thought about this uh, from a, uh, a conversation I had with an asset owner in Australia uh, some years before, where in the end, they just said like, well, you know, there's actually only two different asset classes. There's equity, there's debt, and everything else is a derivative of that. Can we build robust portfolios for every market environment? It's it's a huge challenge. Uh, it, it, there's, there's definitely a, a high degree of difficulty associated with it. 
and I think there's a lot of truth from from that that uh, comment you relayed uh, of um, there, there really only being uh, debt and equity. And, and I, I think I, I would say that that in this the, the context of sort of picking up the remarks I made earlier of of private assets, I think you know, private equity is equity, uh, private credit is 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 credit. There are some some subtle differences. Uh, there's certainly in the case of of, um, uh, of of private equity, much higher leverage. There's the capacity for the sponsor to to create positive operational change in the portfolio companies. There are there are high fees as well, but ultimately, I, I don't think these asset classes are necessarily diversifying assets. They uh, against the the core um, uh, capabilities. That, that that make up a, a public portfolio, so I, I think that that's um, that that it's it's difficult to 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 do this diversification. And I think one way that that you, for example, create an asset that is not equity is is you take different sorts of equity and you um, you you run them long short and market neutral, and this creates something that that should have less beta. And this is a principle behind uh, behind a hedge fund that. That's the hedging bit that makes up a hedge fund, and it, it should, in theory, take out the um, the exposures uh, associated with those those core building blocks. Now, I, I we we talked about um, you know, crisis periods and the fact that assets become correlated, and, and the way we think about that is, I guess, the idea that diversification is great, works in every single environment other than when you really need it to work and then it fails catastrophically. Correlations go to one, returns are negative. And, and I think this is not necessarily because the theory uh, of, of how to build a portfolio is broken, but what happens in practice is that you tend to see uh, uh, see hurting from investors. And some of this is behavioral. Uh, some of this is structural. I think the predominance of quantitative risk management in the industry. And that was a, a novelty in the early 90s. Uh, and uh, it, it wasn't widespread, but you roll out um, uh, ro- roll out education of financial prof- professionals to think quantitatively. You roll out systems and frameworks for thinking. Just about every, every institution uh, will, will say, we're, we're going to uh, monitor the volatility of a portfolio. If the volatility is unacceptable, we delever. If volatility is unacceptable in a crisis. There's delevering. Delevering pushes prices down, deepening the crisis. Volatility goes up, more delevering. And this is a, a vast spiral, a value at risk spiral. And I think in that environment, you can see why diversification fails because investors are all liquidating. So I think in, in that case, diversification doesn't work. What do you do? Uh, the solution we have, and we've talked about it already, is building a strategy we would describe as protection, and that's a set of, of um, different forms of crisis alpha, so volatility strategies, trend following, macro. And they, these, these strategies effectively have, if you like, a, a reverse polarity with regard to risk. Uh, they, they tend to uh, perform well in a, a risk-off environment when diversification is falling apart. And I think that this is, is one way to do it. And it's it's been successful for us, but I I, I, I think it's it's more reliable. Nothing's perfect than relying on diversification alone, uh, which is um, yeah, as I said, works uh, other than when you really need it to work. Yeah, those protection strategies they they can be quite helpful, but 
they also have their complexities and also some drag on, on, on performance. But, but one of the complexities I was particularly interested in is that I spoke to some investors that had protection on uh, during some of these crisis periods, and it worked. But then once the crisis was over, they said, it's really quite hard to build it up again, because you know at that point, buying new protection is the most expensive it can possibly get. How do you think about the implementation of these protection strategies? Is it something that you should have on all the time? Is it something that you can sort of uh, time? How do you think about it? I think it, it depends on what you're trying to protect. So, so in our portfolios, when we build uh, protection, uh, we're basically trying to stabilize the alpha that we're delivering to a client. Uh, and that's, that's a different function from a, a pure tail risk portfolio where, where somebody, and there are a number of specialist providers of tail risk solutions. Where, where the portfolio is designed to protect a wider asset base than, than, the, um, uh, than, than just the, the subsection, uh, than just itself is what I'm trying to say. So you then go back to what, what are the client's assets, what are the client's liabilities, uh, and, and can you afford not to have protection? Uh, and that, that's a very specific tailored solution uh, that, that probably has an eye on uh, both, as I said, the assets and the liabilities, uh, and and it's very hard to generalize. When we're thinking about it, I guess the fact that we are multi-strategy in protection means that we can look at the cost of the different elements of of, of protection and balance between them. But but the observation that um, that you relayed is is absolutely right. In the same way that it, that hurricane insurance is at its most expensive just after the hurricane came through, and every, everyone remembers what the losses looked like. The same is true of protection, um, and, and the same is definitely true of, of the options that that make up you know, one of the strategies that we operate in. They were massively cheap in 2019 when you had a, a lot of uh, particularly risk premium funds uh, looking at the historical uh, realized to implied volatility spread and saying. We ought to be selling this and selling it in huge size, so we, we could build positions cheaply and overweighted equity volatility at that point. Obviously, not the case in uh, in the second quarter of 2020, when uh, when you'd had big volatility sellers, some very well publicised names that, I, that I, I won't talk about about here, blow up, uh, and the, the market equilibrium had, had changed. So at that point. It had got more expensive. The the risks were front of mind, and we we downweighted um, our exposure to to uh, volatility in favour of other strategies. But but certainly you, you you can mitigate the effect. But protection is more expensive after a crisis, uh, and if you want to be always on, and that's a decision that has to go back to the portfolio that you're running, then it's going to cost you more uh, in in that environment. Yeah, so so do you look at it as, as sort of a valuation piece as well, where you say, okay, we, we're now in sort of a sweet spot between the risk and return on these things? Yeah, I, I think that's got to be part of the input. Uh, you, you've, As I said, that you, you're creating protection with a view to the alpha that you're trying to protect. So so if you, we, we run levered portfolios, so if we pump up our leverage on the risk-taking part of the portfolio and devote more of our risk budget to it, then it creates a natural need for, for, for more on the protection side. 
But if, if you're in an environment where you've kind of delevered the risk taking, you can afford not to use as much protection. So the two tend to move together to some extent. And then the, the relative value, the relative um, opportunity sets of, of the protection strategies dictate the weightings between the, the different subcomponents. Do you think that these protection strategies become more attractive in sort of a high inflation environment? Where I'm thinking, you know, I, I was talking the other day to a super fund and about their investment objective, and they had, I think, a long-term objective of CPI plus four and five. Well, now that the, the inflation is at almost seven percent, seven percent plus five percent, that's beginning to become quite steep. If you then only have to pay, if you, you know, a low percentage for protection, it becomes much more attractive than when returns are say four percent. So in this high inflation environment, does it become more attractive, or does it move just along with the inflation? Have you got any easy questions for me? That's a very, very <laughs> tough one to deal with. I, look, I, I think you, you've had incredibly buoyant asset markets, as we talked about already. E equities have basically gone up, certainly in the US, more, with, with some, some glitches, but, but since the early 80s. And we've already talked about the trend down in interest rates. And I, I think that's meant that return targets, uh, as they stand today, uh, are heroic. They, 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 they're, they're targets that might have been able to have been achieved over the last few decades uh, with, with the benefit of hindsight, but I'm not sure they're necessarily representative of, of what can be achieved going forward. You, know, you can't see interest rates going down from, you know, if, they, if they went down from you know, 15 to 2, uh, they're not going to go from 2 to minus 13. You can't you can't, uh, it's mathematically possible. Is it going to happen in the real world? No. So, so I think I, I would say that to, to some extent, so, some of the targets are going to be very, very difficult for people to, to beat. Uh, and, and in a sense, whether you protect the assets, coming back to your question or not, doesn't necessarily make, make that any easier or um, uh, easier to achieve. Now, I say, say in, a, in a sense, for a very long-term investor, Protection is going to be a drag uh, on returns. So protection shapes your returns better uh, it, by, by uh, cushioning drawdowns, but it, it, it realistically does that at some cost. So I think in a, in a sense, it, it, it's going to weaken the returns that you're going to deliver, but, it, it, but you're going to produce a, a much better path. And that might be important, say, for investors that are looking to retire and can't afford to be trying to retire at the point that, that they're in significant drawdown. So higher valuations, higher inflation, I think, create the risk of a, of a drawdown um, and, and protection might work in that, uh, in, in that scenario. So, so I'm not, I can't give you a crisp uh, yes or no answer. I, I, I think it's very dependent on the circumstances of, of the, the person asking the question. Uh, it, it, it works for us in our portfolios for what we're trying to deliver for our clients. It doesn't necessarily work for everyone, and it's very hard to do at, at the scale that, that, that particularly some of the Australian super funds are looking to do it. And I think we come back to the earlier discussion we had about the role of trend following for some of the really big US investors. That's a good example of a strategy that can be run at scale. Uh, and and the, the question is what, is, is what sort of scale can it be run at? And ultimately, are the returns crimped, uh, reduced by, by the scale of the assets trying to get into the opportunity. At some point, that has to be the case. Uh, but certainly the evidence of 2022 uh, is that, that we're not there yet. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's 
So the answer, as with all good answers, is it depends. Uh, that's what sure. I get from this one. Um, let's finish up with an easy question then. Um, innovation. Uh, what do you see in this space uh, of new developments happening? I think we heard quite a little bit about specs recently. Not all of them have turned out fantastic, but there have been some interesting innovations in that space. Where do you see sort of the most innovation taking place? I guess circling back to, to the really early part of our discussion, I was fascinated by financial markets because they were they were new to me and new things were happening in the 80s and in the 90s and continuously. So for me, from a career sense, one of the things I, I, I like is is the change, is the is the innovation, is always thinking about something new. And I, I think that will continue uh, inevitably. I, I think that the uh, investing gets harder, not easier. So strategies that you could go to clients in the 90s and say, we're a hedge fund, we're going to trade merger arbitrage, and we'd like you to pay us 2 and 20 for doing that. Uh, you, you now have investment banks offering merger arbitrage on a swap from their QIS department at uh, tens of basis points. So the competitive pressures go up. What uh, is genuine alpha becomes commoditized over time. So you need to innovate to find opportunities for clients uh, through time. And our approach to investing is multi-strategy. Multi-strategy, as the name suggests, is adaptive. New things come into the portfolios, new opportunities come up. So SPACs is a great example of that. Uh, as you point out, not so great necessarily for all the people that put money to work uh, when back in 2021, when we wanted to believe in flying cars, space tourism, you name it, SPACs could fund it. That hasn't worked out well. Uh, and, and there are some problems with the structure, but it created great opportunities to take the other side of that trade. And now the SPAC structures themselves are, are, are interestingly cheap because nobody wants to talk about them. <laughs> So, so I think that's a good example of innovation, but I don't. I, I think SPACs will go back to being one of those weird things that happened in the post-COVID era, and they won't be a big part of portfolios in 23 or 24. But what, one thing's for sure, that, that there will be innovation, the innovation will create opportunities, uh, and where we want to be is, is uh, able to use our research, use the depth that we have in the team, the flexibility that our clients grant us in our mandates, to capture those opportunities uh, on an ongoing basis. And I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm confident that we're going to be able to continue to do that. And, and you know, I guess returning to that career perspective, it, it's, it, it's what keeps me engaged in the industry is, is, is solving those challenges. Uh, and uh, that, that's you know, very important to me is getting that right, because if you get it right, you ultimately deliver for your clients, and that's the bottom line. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, David, thank you very much for your for your time. It was very good to talk to you again. Yeah, no, th thanks, Arthur. It was, it was uh, great to be on the show. Uh, and uh, look forward to catching up with you next time I'm in Australia. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Thank mm -hmm. you.